Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Performances by the actor Steve McQueen in classic films like The Great Escape and Bullet earned him the nickname, The King of Cool. But behind the scenes, McQueen's character was complex in nature. He could be both difficult and demanding and kind and generous, someone who could act aloof, but care about things deeply. My guest has traced both sides of the coin of McQueen's coolness for decades. His name is Marshall Terrell, and he's the author of multiple biographies on McQueen, including his latest, Steve McQueen in his own words. Today on the show, Marshall and I discuss McQueen's enduring influence on popular culture in terms of everything from style to motorcycles, the code McQueen lived both on and off screen, and whether after years of studying McQueen's life, Marshall has figured out what made him so cool. We then talk about McQueen's deprived childhood, which left him ever craving affirmation in his youthful stints in a reform school in the Marines. We get into how he found his way into acting and into superstardom, despite the fact that he could be very difficult to work with. Marshall explains McQueen's relationships with women and the role race car driving played in his life. We also discuss why McQueen had a hermit phase and how, in a lesser known aspect of his life, he had a literal come to Jesus moment in which he became a born again Christian. And we end our conversation with McQueen's untimely tabloid exploited death at age 50. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is McQueen. All right, Marshall Terrell, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. So you are a journalist and a biographer, and you've written several biographies of different celebrities and famous men, cultural icons. Uh, You've done one on Elvis Presley, Pete Maravich. You've done some things on Johnny Cash. But one subject you've written extensively about is actor Steve McQueen, the king of cool. When did you start writing about Steve McQueen and what initially drew you to him as a subject? I first started writing about him in the late 80s. Now, my first book was published in 1993, but you know, my research started in the late 80s. He didn't become a cultural icon at that time, but by the time my book got published in 93, he did. So it was great timing for me. What drew me to him as a subject was because there was a uh, connection to him as a kid. My dad was the real Steve McQueen fan. My dad just passed away in July. And he was 83 years old. And like every time there was a Steve McQueen movie on television, or if there was a movie out in the theater, we'd go. And that was kind of our thing. And, and McQueen was his guy. And so that was the connection. So we're going to get into Steve McQueen's career here in our in interview. But, you know, big idea. I mean, I think I'm 38. I've seen Steve McQueen movies. My, my parents, they grew up watching Steve McQueen movie, watched The Great Escape, Towering Inferno. But for some people, like he died before they were born who are listening to this podcast. So can you give us an idea how big of a star he was at his peak? Like, I mean, how famous was he and like what sort of influence did he have on popular culture during the peak of his career? In terms of how big of a star he was, you have to understand back then, there wasn't the concentration level of, of media and movies and streaming and DVD and television. There was, there was a line of demarcation between television star and movie star. And he was a movie star. And there were only about, I want to say, five to seven movie stars at that time who could open a film. And Steve McQueen was one of them. The other was Paul Newman, John Wayne, Clint Eastwood stars of, of those caliber got all of them now today are icons. So that's how big he was in, in, in terms of, again, going back to popular culture, you know, in the great escape, he wore this ripped 
t-shirt, you know, like they didn't have a collar or sleeves and, and, you know, you, you could count on guys like that wearing shirts like that in terms of, of motorcycles. I mean, what he did for the motorcycle industry cannot be underestimated. I mean, he, he, uh, he popularized it because before that, you know, you had Marlon Brando in the wild one where there were outlaws and McQueen kind of, even though he, he was a rebel, he's, he sort of sanitized motorcycle riding because, uh, with the documentary on any Sunday. And then in Thomas Crown, you know, with the suits, he, he popularized uh, the, the British cut of men's suits. So he, he cut this wide swath of, of cult, popular culture in terms of fashion, machinery, coolness. I mean, just he was, he was, um, th- there's no one today that you can really compare him to. There are elements of Brad Pitt, there are elements of George Clooney. And I, I would say, I say even Denzel Washington in terms of acting. Like if you, if you see the equalizer today, you can see. And so, so his, his, his influence really was, was on acting. So the influence that he has today is just, is tremendous. I mean, perhaps even bigger than in his lifetime. Yeah. I mean, still today, guys are still trying to dress like Steve McQueen. They'll do the turtleneck like in Bullet with the suit, you know, the, the jacket over it, the peril, sunglasses. They're still doing that, you know, 40 years after he died. That's true. That's true. Yes, that's that's the fashion side, but the, there's still the machinery side. I mean, there's, you know, the bullet Mustang still comes out with a car every five years, and that's that's strictly because of the McQueen legacy. You know, McQueen was into antique uh, air, airplane flying and antique motorcycle collecting and, and antique car collecting. And, you know, I mean, look at how big those industries are. I mean, that's huge. And McQueen was really kind of the first celebrity to do that. And how do you think he changed or influenced, you know, our ideas of American masculinity that we still see today? I would say the the influence is more in the '60s than it is today, because the 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 what I, what I see today in terms of masculinity it cannot be compared to the to a man of the '60s, and and that's not to put it down. It's just to say it's changed so much. I'd say his 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 influence really is is more on, is on fashion. In terms of masculinity, I mean, yeah, it's up there on the screen and guys definitely want to be like him. But in today's society, I don't know if, if you can get away with that sort of behavior. I'm not sure. Well, we'll talk about some of his behavior because he had, he was infamous for his behavior. But before we do, like, what do you think, as I was read, reading your biography, the thing that stuck out to me is that McQueen, when he, we'd go into these uh, auditions or he'd just in, in, meet somebody and people would be like, that that guy's got something. That guy is cool. Like there's something about that guy. I don't know what it is, but we got to hire him and make him a part of this, make him the star of the movie. Like we're, in your years of researching McQueen and writing about him, were you ever, ever able to figure out like what that thing was? Like what made him so cool and people wanted to work with him, even though he was difficult to work with, men wanted to be like him and women wanted to be with him. Like what, what was that thing? Well, it's what they call the X factor. And, and you, you can't really describe it. The only thing I can come close to is there was this animal magnetism that came out in him. I mean, he had it in real life, but he really honed it to a fine point for his movie characters. So he was, he was what you saw on the screen, but there was also this insecure side. But in terms of what he wanted in himself as a movie star, you know, though he, you know, he, he popularized those. And he, he kind of, I, I would say he created the, the movie archetype of today's modern action hero. So those were the, the things that, that people obviously wanted to emulate. 
But in terms of talking about the archetype, I mean, we're talking about things like, you know, he was, he, he was the unreluctant guy that got trapped into a situation and has to get himself out. I don't, I don't think you saw that with, with movie heroes of, of yesteryear, like John Wayne or Gary Cooper. Queen was a different type of movie action hero. And, and it was more believable. And, you know, just the things that he did were unbelievably cool when he got himself out of it. So it, it's really hard to, to put a finger on, you know, what made him cool or intriguing other than just, you know, he had that X factor. Yeah, he was an anti-hero. That was one of the, his, the character he played throughout of all of his music. Like the anti-hero, he wasn't, he was kind of in it for himself. Like he was just there to survive for himself and get his. But along the way, like he had a code that he would, you know, he would follow and wouldn't cross. There's boundaries he wouldn't cross, even though he's looking out for number one. That's correct. And you see that really, he pulls that off quite well in The Great Escape. He's in it for himself, but at the end of it, you know that he's going to end up doing the right thing. And he ends up making the sacrifice, you know, for the for the whole uh, squadron that that was that was imprisoned, and so that that was true. He had his own code, and a lot of his own codes in his personal life ended up on the movie screen. You know, for example, in one, Dead or Alive, the the writer had writ- had written written it where McQueen beats up three guys, and McQueen's like, no, 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 that's that doesn't happen. Here's what you do: you back down. And then you find each one of them individually, and then you kick their butt. <laughs> and that's what he did in the Marines. Yeah, he uh, he found guys uh, taking a leak in the latrine, and then you know he he blasted the door open, and then kicked their ass. And he did it, and he found these guys one by one. But when they you know when they treaded on him three on one, then he backed down. So those were the types of codes that you saw in his films. And the other code is you know always live up to your word, never double cross anybody, and uh, do your end. And that and you see that in the Getaway. You know, there was there would have been a chance where he could have double crossed the actor Al Terry, and he said, "Nope, you know, got to, you know, we we live up to our word, and then that way, you know, nobody's chasing us." Well, they ended up trying to double cross him anyway, but those were the kinds of things that McQueen had in his films that resonated, you know, with audiences. So a big theme in your your book, your 2010 biography, is that to understand McQueen, and I'd say even like his coolness, like what made him cool, like that X factor, you have to understand his childhood because that influenced like his entire life. What was his childhood like and how did it affect his personal life and his career? Well, uh, the British always like to compare his life to, to a Charles Dickens novel, and, and that's not too far from the truth. He had uh, both of his parents were alcoholics. And his father uh, took a walk when he was six months old, and his mother was not really very loving towards him. And so, and she was a young lady. I think she was 19 when she had him. And so she was a party girl. And so once she did give birth to him, you know, they, they went to live with his grandparents. And then sometimes she would go off on her own and then live somewhere away and then marry somebody and then bring Steve into this hostile situation. And then he gets sent back to the farm in Slater, Missouri, uh, with this, uh, with his uncle Claude. And so it affected him the rest of his life because he just couldn't shake it. And so you saw a lot of that on film and how it shaped his compulsion to be famous was because, you know, it, it, it was miserable. He wanted, he wasn't unlike a lot of other movie stars at that time. For example, I did a book with an actor named Ed Cookie Burns who did 77 Sunset Strip. And it seemed like everybody who was trying to run away or wanted to to better their lives, they would just run to Hollywood. You know, with McQueen, it was pretty much the same. Yeah, he wanted to be loved because he didn't get that love as a kid. 
basically. Absolutely. And yeah. um and the, the the ironic thing is is that once he did get love, then he questioned it. So yeah. But that that was an interesting part of his personality. Right. That affected his relationships a lot. We can talk about his relationships with his wives that he had and other women as well here in a bit. But besides living with his uncle, which he had, a, that guy had a profound impact on him, taught the importance of hard work and brought a lot of discipline and stability that he didn't have. He also did a stint at a, like a boys town in California that also had a big influence on the rest of his life. Tell us about that. Well, yes, it was called Boys Republic and he was 14. What, what had happened was, is that he was getting into a lot of fights with his stepfather. And it was an untenable situation. And so his mother basically put him there. And then Boys Republic is in Chino, California. And so it's a, a, a reform school, but without walls, without fences. And they and, and it's kind of discipline-based. And they get up in the morning, and they milk cows at 4 a.m. And then they do studies all day. And then they milk cows again. And basically what it was, was a, it was a little town. And they had things like city councils. And they learned about society, which was really cool. I mean, and so McQueen had to learn to, what he said is I had to learn to exist within it. Otherwise, you know, I, I would have been a hood. So it really saved his life in a lot of ways. So it, it, it taught him discipline. It taught him how society worked. It gave him an education, even though he left by ninth grade. I've seen, seen a lot of his letters and, and, you know, fairly sharp guy for, for a ninth grade education. His letters very, very, very precise to the point and, you know, have a lot of clarity. So I was always surprised that, well, you know, when you look at somebody with a ninth grade education, you think, oh, well, but Steve McQueen uh, was very, very, not only very sharp in terms of, of, of like letter writing, but he was sharp in terms of street smarts and reading people. That's where his real intelligence came in. Yeah, and he, he, they even showed signs of that, of being able to read people and I wouldn't say manipulate, but like influence them, uh, even as a kid at this uh, Boys Republic. Right, and some of that too came from him being on the street. I remember his, one of his best friends, Pat Johnson, said, as a street kid, you have to learn to act. You have to learn how to react to people. And he, you know, the, here was this line that he delivered to me that I'll never forget. He goes, Steve McQueen was an actor way before he went to Hollywood. <laughs> right. Well, and so yeah, so he leaves the boys, he runs away, and then he kind of yeah, becomes an urchin, basically, during high school, goes to New York City, goes to different places, does odd jobs. Then he did a stint in the Marines. Uh, what was his military career like? Was it long and distinguished? You know, it, it, the funny thing is, is that he signed for a three-year stint, and he was 17 years old, and he had to get permission from his mother. And the interesting thing is he sent about half of his paycheck home to his mother. And, you know, people always talked about how he hated his mother, but there are signs there too, where he, you know, supported her and loved her. But the, the three-year stint, you know, I, I brought the, I, I've got his military file and I brought it to a friend of mine who was a drill sergeant in the Marines and lifelong Marine guy and looked at it. And he said, you know, for, for a peacetime soldier, he did very well, but you know, McQueen always liked to embellish his image as a pure rebel all the time. And so I think one of the quotes he gave was, you know, the only way I'd become a, a lieutenant is if all the other ones dropped dead and they promoted me. But that wasn't the case. This sergeant that uh, I had looked at his file say that, you know, he was, you know, he, he moved up fairly quickly in the ranks and tested quite well. So um, it, it wasn't, but then, then there were cases where he lied about what happened in the Marines. For example, he he gave a interview with a movie magazine and of course the, the the writer got a little carried away but you know he talked about how he saved these people uh, during these exercises in in the labrador 
and McQueen saved five people. Well, that was never in his military file. And he always talked about guarding Harry Truman's yacht. And then I, I asked a fellow soldier who served with him about that. And he said, you know what? Harry Truman's yacht was on a sandbar and he goes, and a, a tree was growing through it. But, you know, if you, if you had guard duty for it, then, you know, it sounds pretty good on your resume. But so those are the types of things that I would find. But the other th- interesting thing I found in, in his uh, military file was that he did do uh, 41 days in the brig for going AWOL. And it wasn't so much for going AWOL, but when he got caught, he got caught by a police officer and they got into a fight. And that's why he got thrown in the brig for as long as he did. And the sad part is, part of his punishment was cleaning out the hull of a ship in the Washington, uh, D.C. Uh, naval yards. And in those pipes were, were, was loaded with asbestos. And that was in December of 1949. And uh, the form of cancer they had was called mesothelioma. And it takes 20 to 30 years to develop. And in December of 1979, that's when he went to Cedar sinai to check out what was wrong with him. So it took almost exactly 30 years to develop. And we'll, we'll talk about his death. That was like the saddest part in the book. Really tragic, his death. So he did the military, got out, and started kind of rambling around again. How did he stumble in? I mean, the way you describe it, it seems like he kind of stumbled into acting. It wasn't like something he had ambitions to do. He kind of fell into it and was like, this is great. I don't have to like work all that hard and I get to hang out with chicks and uh, do some work and that's it. So how did that happen? Well, you know, he was dating a lady who was a dancer and she said, basically, you're so kooky, you'd be perfect for an actor. You should give that a try. And so he found out that he could get acting lessons on the GI Bill. And so he went in and he was accepted to Sanford Miser's Playhouse, which is a very famous acting studio in New York City at that time in, in the 1950s. And Meisner was one of the top uh, acting instructors at the time. I mean, he and Lee Strasberg kind of ruled that scene. And Meisner was a little bit kinder. Uh, Strasberg could be brutal at times. But so anyway, he, he got into it discovered there were a lot of women in there. I mean, there's no doubt that that was an influence, but then discovered that he was actually quite good and that all those odd jobs in his background fed into acting because it gave him these experiences that he could draw on. So it just, it just so happened that, okay, yeah, he stumbled upon this and all of a sudden he discovers he's pretty good at it. So, um, and then he got positive reinforcement, which I think is the first time he ever got that in his life. Now he always talked about how he didn't really care about acting, but you know, he did. I, as a matter of fact, I just interviewed somebody who was his roommate back in Greenwich village when he just first started out. And he always talked about how McQueen had three and four jobs so that he could go to school. So, I mean, to me, that says that, you know, he worked hard for it. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. It's just a lot of things that people don't know about him. He started off in the stage and then transitioned to television. And that was because like most people, when they got to television, like that was a dead end. How did Steve McQueen break the barrier from television and get into the movies? Well, that came with, well, we should probably first establish that he was on when television's Wanted Dead or Alive was uh, on CBS. And that was a top 10 television show for the first two years. Then they switched it from Saturday to Wednesday night, and then it killed it. But McQueen didn't necessarily mind that because his focus was always on the movies. And at that time, there was a line of demarcation in terms of movies and television. And so McQueen had always wanted to become a movie star. And so 
no one had really made that leap before until um, he started in The Great Escape. And I, I say metaphorically, when he made that leap over the barbed wire fence in The Great Escape, he also made the leap from television stardom to movie stardom. And he was the first one to do so. So that was, that was The Great Escape. That was the movie that made him a star. Because he did a couple other movies before Great Escape. Yes. And he did, he did The Magnificent Seven, which was, which was, a, big, which was a big hit. Uh, but that was starring Yul Brenner and Steve was second lead. The Great Escape was kind of the first time that was his breakout role. And it's like, okay, a new star is here and he, and he has come in a new form. And he's, he's not John Wayne and he's, you know, he's not Gary Cooper. He is a star. He's a new star. And this is, he's a star for the Beatles generation. He was also in the blob. People forget that too. <laughs> yes, he was. And the funny thing was at the time he hated the blob, thought it would go away. And when he got his start on Wanted Dead or Alive, the, the week that he got his debut on television, that's when the people at the blob said, okay, this might be a good time to debut this film. So he was doing double duty there, but uh, the blob he was, he was kind of ashamed about. And then years later on, he, he kind of just, uh, he, 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 he lightened up quite a bit. All right. So The Great Escape was the movie that catapulted him to stardom. And then after that, he just had a string like hit after hit after hit in the 60s and into like the early 70s. Like at what point did like he become known as like people were like, hey, not only is he a star, but like he has transcended stardom and he is the king of cool. Like we're going to call him that. When do you think that happened? You know, I, that's the, the, the most ironic thing is I've always tried to look up who coined the king of cool. I could never find that out. But that was definitely a term that was given to him in the '60s, and that was because of, like you said, that run of those run of hits that which started with Cincinnati Kid, Nevada Smith, Thomas Crown Affair, The Sand Pebbles, and Bullet. So five hits back to back in a row. I'm not sure if that's been done before or since, but and then Bullet, of course, being the biggest of all. So those things kind of enhanced his stardom, but Bullet, I mean, that he went from movie stardom to, you know, superstar. And, you know, the, when you enter the superstar realm, you know, you're in rarefied air. Uh, so one thing you talk about throughout his book is that okay, he was a star and he was also incredibly professional when he worked. Like when he was there to work, he worked, but he was also incredibly difficult to work with. He was fiercely competitive with other actors, even directors. How did that manifest itself? And like, why did people keep wanting like to work with him, even though for lack of a better word, he was like a complete a-hole? Well, the, the competitive part is yeah, he, that's what he had to do in order to reach the mountaintop. He was willing to climb over bodies. You saw that the most in New York City, but you also saw that in the early part of his acting career. And he was a young upstart, and um, he didn't go for the uh, older actors who, uh, like Yul Brenner, who, um, when he walked on the set of The Magnificent Seven, he would snap his fingers, and then there was somebody in his entourage that would place a cigarette in his hand. And then a lighter to light it. <laughs> and McQueen didn't. McQueen just didn't like that because he was just a rebel through and through. He he didn't go for that movie star. I I mean he loved movie stardom. He liked the perks of it, but he didn't like acting like that. He he always wanted to forever be the rebel. He didn't want to be that show busy movie star that you know that acted like that. So it's interesting that he was competitive with other actors and he was difficult with with directors. I don't think he was difficult with directors just to be difficult. I think he knew what he wanted and and you know he there was a there's a quote in my new book called Steve McQueen in his own words where he talked about compromise and he said if you compromise one thing it's up there on the screen. So I respect him for that. 
And so I think he was the only guy, and he was he was breaking ground at the time. So he was the only guy that really knew what he wanted and how he wanted to portray himself. So maybe the screenplay didn't show that, but he wanted to to do things that were really good for him. And he, and Robert Wise, the the director of the Sand Pebble, said, "I never knew another actor who knew what he wanted as much as Steve McQueen did." So I think that that's why there was some difficulty. But in terms of why people wanted to work with him. Well, it's, that's, that's, that's easy to answer. If you've ever met any actor in Hollywood, the, the next thing they do is looking for their next gig. So, and, and, and having a Steve McQueen film on your resume looks pretty good. So that's why they continue to work with him. I just don't think that they knew what they were in for when they did work with him. So, but you know, there were, it, it, it depended if you got in his way or not, you know, like obviously Yul Brenner got in his way. Frank Sinatra did not because Frank Sinatra didn't care about being a star. And he told John Sturgis, give the kid all the close-ups. But the interesting thing was, is when McQueen was now an established star, and if he thought somebody was trying to steal the picture from him, boy, they got his wrath. <laughs> yeah, there's instances where, uh, like, I, like, you know, Steve McQueen was short. He was like 5'9", right? Or something like that. And if someone pointed that out, he'd get really he, get, he, he was touchy. He had a chip on his shoulder. Yeah, well, there's a funny story. The director of Le Mans, his first day, well, John Sturgis was the initial director. And then another gentleman came on named Lee Katzen. And Lee Katzen was a television director. And so when he was directing his first scene, he said something to the effect of, now, Steve, because you're short, I want you to stand over here. <laughs> and he did that in front of the crew and McQueen grabbed him by the tie, lifted him up. And he said, it's Mr. McQueen to you. <laughs> and so he would do things like that to establish, uh, I, you know, obviously that was, that was something that was provoked within him, but he, he would do things like that to establish his power. All right. So you mentioned Le Mans. That's his, his race car movie. Besides being, you know, a celebrated actor, McQueen was also, he was a legitimate race car driver, like a professional driver. How did he get started with race car driving? Well, uh, I think it started in, in New York City. He was racing on weekends to, to earn extra money. And then, of course, when he, he got to Hollywood and he got the TV show, the very first thing he did was purchase uh, a race car for, for racing on the weekends because that's what he loved. He said when he got that first trophy, he, he got instantly hooked. And it wasn't, just a, it wasn't just a hobby for him. It was a release. And it was part of, uh, and one, again, one of the quotes in the new book talks about how he wanted to have an identity apart from acting. And race car driving gave him that. But it also gave him a thrill. It gave him equilibrium because he respected other drivers because he said, you know, if you're lousy, other, other people in that, that profession will tell you how lousy you are. And, and he goes, it makes me think that I'm not God's gift to humanity. So there were several reasons why he liked race car driving. His race, there's a story in there talking about, it's not really related to race car driving, but kind of. Bruce Lee, him and Steve McQueen were buddies. And Bruce Lee, I guess, got a, a fancy car, like a Porsche, something like that. And Steve McQueen took him for a joyride and scared the, the bejesus out of <laughs> yeah, Bruce Lee. What happened was Lee was contemplating buying a Porsche, and 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 Lee was kind of going through the Hollywood trip himself. You know, he was um, now that he'd become a, a star in Asia. You know, he's growing his hair a little bit longer. He was smoking pot. He was wearing the sunglasses. So the next thing he wanted to do was you know, the tight blue jeans. So the next thing he wanted to do was buy a, a a Porsche. And Steve said, "Well, listen, Bruce, these these cars aren't toys." And uh, let me just take you for a test ride in mine. And so, yeah, he took him on this ride where, you know, he was doing spins and doing all these crazy things. And, um, you know, at, at the end of the ride, Lee was like shriveled down in the seat, 
this macho man, Bruce Lee. <laughs> right. The reason Queen did that, though, was to put Bruce Lee in his place because Bruce Lee was coming back and crowing about how he was a bigger star and making more money than Steve McQueen. Well, but, but, but even better, here's what McQueen did. Well, yeah, he, he, Lee had written him a letter saying, I'm a bigger star to more people across the country than you are. You know, he was talking about his Asian stardom. And so the way that McQueen answered that was he sent him a signed eight by 10 and said to Bruce, my, my biggest fan. <laughs> and that that competitive just, streak, I, not right? only put him in his place, but it was just so sweet and subtle and short and to the point. <laughs> so McQueen, besides being a famous actor, he was a, a sex symbol, like women flocked to him. And this got him into trouble. We talk talk about his his uh, marriages. But like, what do you think the appeal was with women? Like, why do you think women were so drawn to Steve McQueen? Well, again, it, it goes to that X factor. You know, I'm I, I kind of draw a correlation between me and my brother Mark. And you know, I, I I'm an okay looking guy, but Mark is a he has something about him. Like he he's chiseled. He's he's got this animal quality. I remember this this one lady who was a friend of mine, just like, who's that? And I said, that's my brother. And she goes, oh man, he's like a wild animal. And I think women pick up on that. And I think with with Steve McQueen, that was what he was. He was just like this feral animal that had to be tamed. And women just, you know, that they went crazy over that. Now there there was a price to be paid for that. You know, they could have a short-term relationship with them and that would work out just fine but the women that had long-term relationships with them that didn't work out so well right so yeah i mean what was interesting about steve mcqueen is that he was very liberal with you know his relationships privately but like publicly he put on this face like i love traditional relationships a traditional marriage mm-hmm. and this sort of paradox manifests itself big time with his first wife that's true and and um I, um uh, you know, Chris Rock had this uh, famous saying in one of his uh, monologues and that a man is as faithful as his options. And I try to put myself in McQueen's shoes. If you were a guy in Hollywood at his age uh, with that kind of testosterone and women throwing themselves at you, it would be very, very easy to fall prey to that. Uh, but yes, he did go about, and, and this was kind of the thing that you did in the 60s. You talked about, you know, you didn't brag about how sexy you were. You talked about you know, your family values and how traditional you were, you know, how this rebel has been tamed. But behind the scenes, it was completely different because he was at, uh, you know, the Whiskey A Go-Go every night. And, you know, he, he was, he was uh, friendly with the owner, Elmer Valentine. And, you know, he was picking up women left and right. And, uh, you know, the, the Sunset Strip was his playground. But, you know, the, the, he and his wife had an understanding. He would, he would come home at night to her. And, you know, she was accepting of that for a long time. Until finally, uh, you know, with the, the the end of the '60s and into the early '70s, you know, it just got to be too flag- flagrant, and she couldn't stand it any longer. Well, what was interesting, you said like he would even like after a fling, he would come home and tell her like, "Yeah, I had a thing with so and so." Hard. To, it's it's hard to understand that, but yes, you know, Neil had written about that. Uh, that was his first wife in her book about how that was kind of like his way of confessing and getting this sin off of his chest. What, what, I mean, what I thought was interesting, you make this point is that like, so he had three wives throughout his, his life and you make this case that each wife, like kind of for McQueen, it was sort of utilitarian in a way, like they served a purpose for each part of his career or his life. Like his first wife played an instrumental role in his rise to start. Like, what do you, what was her role? Do you think? Well, that, that's what it was. Neil represented the rise to stardom and popularity 
and and perhaps you know even despite what we talked about it was it was a very very steady relationship and then Allie McGraw his second wife was almost representative of his retreat into Malibu and into his hermit phase and then Barbara McQueen was almost like his uh his reemergence again so um th- that's kind of how i looked at things and how i looked at those marriages well so you know, McQueen, he was a philanderer. He was highly competitive, and that could be good or bad. Could be petty, thin-skinned, but he was also privately, and this again, he was very private about this. He was also very privately generous and kind. How did that manifest itself throughout his life? Well, he was of the belief that uh, um, charity should be done anonymously, you know, and I, I really respect that. And you know, that did show itself throughout his life. He he was. He was all those things that you talked about before, but there was that other flip side to him and that he was generous. Not only was he generous with the Boys Republic, but like there were like little things like, for example, on the set of uh, Papillon, there was a, a, he had coconuts cut for him every morning and he'd drink the coconut milk or eat the coconut. And one day the guy that was making those coconuts sliced through his fingers with a machete and they were basically, basically hanging on by a thread and McQueen had him helicoptered to Miami and, you know, made sure that his whole medical bill was, was taken care of. The same thing happened to one of the writers. I think it was, uh, Mert Lawwell on, on any Sunday where he mangled his hand and he had to go in for an op- a special, special operation. McQueen set it all up and paid for everything. And then there was an incident in the, the latter part of his life where he read about a, a kid with cancer who probably wasn't going to make it, you know, past Christmas. So he arranged it to where the kid would have a limousine pick him up and take him to Disneyland and, you know, have, have this whole day to himself. So McQueen did do wonderful things like that that showed that he just wasn't, uh, you know, this jerk. He was, you know, there was this other side to him that was quite nice. You know, and I, I've heard just as many nice stories about Steve McQueen as I have heard bad stories. And I think that has to do with when he was in Hollywood and he was making films, you know, he was absolutely ruthless, but when he was away from it and he, he could be himself, then, then he was a different person. And one of my, I think the most touching stories, like he did go back to the boys Republic and just visit and like hang out with the boys, play pool with them, like just hang out and talk to them just, just because like, there's like this big movie star talking to these kids. I'm sure it made yeah. their, made their year. Well, and, and the thing was he, he wanted to show them, he wanted to give them a, a, a role model of, Hey, I've, ex- I've been exactly where you are and you can do, you can go on to do great things. And that was his, he, so he did that. He didn't say it, but that, that was the reason why he did it. Uh, I think, I think his quote was, uh, you know, in life, you got to pay back, you know, you, you, you owe. So this is what I do. All right. So he had this string of hits that ended with bullet and he just became just a huge star. Like when did his star start to plummet or start to dim a bit? Like, when do you think the moment was? Well, it was, it, you know, he, he got, he got bigger and bigger. I mean, now Lamont's was, Le Mans is interesting because it was uh, not a box office smash or a critical hit, but it was certainly big in the European crowd. And it was today, it's got this life like you wouldn't believe with all the, the racers. It's, it's, you know, that is now the gold standard for all racing films. But, and then he also had a, another uh, flop with Junior Bonner, but then he came back really big in 72 with the getaway followed by Papillon followed by the towering inferno. Now everybody laughs at the towering inferno today as a disaster movie, but 
That disaster movie was the highest grossing film of all time for about six months until Jaws replaced it. But Towering Inferno grossed about $300 million in 1974 dollars. So what happened was he, he got a salary of a million dollars and then profit participation, I think, of 7.5% of the gross, which gave him like $14 million in 1974 dollars. That'd be equivalent of like 60 to 75 million today. So what he did was he got, he got burned out. He, he, I don't, I think what happened was he didn't think that he could top himself after the Tyrant Inferno and he got a little burned out and he, you know, he, he had had the relationship with Ali McGraw and he was in the public eye for a very, very long time. So he retreated to Malibu and he didn't do a film for a while. He, but he still had a film obligation, which was, um, first artist, which he'd had, he had to deliver. Three films. The first one was the getaway, but he still hadn't delivered the, the, the second and the third. So he took off a couple of years. That's when his, his, his star faded a bit. But again, it wasn't because he was, uh, in a bad film. It was because he just took himself out. He just, he could no longer. It was, I mean, it's kind of equivalent of Michael Jordan when he, uh, took himself out of basketball. He was just, it was just, he was, he was too, too hot. And so he just, uh, just took himself out. So. But the vehicle that he chose as his comeback, well, it wasn't really a comeback, but he, he had to fulfill that obligation. It was called an enemy of the people. And it was a Henrik Ibsen play. And McQueen had this beard and, and, and long hair and wore granny glasses, didn't look anything like himself. And it was a play and it was unlike anything that he had ever done before. And he did it basically as an FU to the, uh, movie studio executive who kept pressing him for that uh, obligation. So that was, that was one obligation. And then um, he took off another couple of years after that. And then he came back with Tom Horn, which was um, 1980. And it was a flop because it was that, but that was the last of his first artist obligation. And then the Hunter, which was billed as his big, big comeback. And then uh, it, that was kind of thwarted by the fact that he was diagnosed with cancer. And then the news got out that he had cancer. Well, yeah, during the seventies, like he, where he took that break, it, it sounds like he he kind of he accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. He got to the top, and he said he became a hermit. Like he started wearing disguises and like, even like picking up odd jobs. Like he'd be like a bartender yeah. or like working construction. That's right. Just <laughs> yeah, he, he was a bartender at a place called the Old Place, and all the all the uh, and, and it's still around. And the Old Place is just like this funky old Western saloon, and. You know, he just, uh, and so there were, there were, that's where he went to go drink. And there were sometimes like, you know, he, be, he became friendly with all the bartenders. And when they get busy, he'd say, Hey, I want to help. And so, um, and he wasn't the only movie star. I, I heard there were other movie stars that like wanted to quit the business and just wanted to be a bartender. So that was an interesting, strange phenomenon that happened at that bar. All right. So he kind of got burnt out from being a star. And then he, this is when he married Ally McGraw. That relationship ended. And then he meets a model named Barbara Minty, who was like 25 years younger than him. And what's interesting, like this, like this, is like this, like the third phase of McQueen's life. And he seems to really, so he had like he was, you know, ambitious chip on his shoulder during the '60s, uh, maybe early '70s. '70s, he had like he just got burnt out, uh, kind of had a, a midlife crisis, kind of became like a hippie a little bit, sort of talking like, you know, saying far out and things like that, and growing his beard out. And then this last part of his life, like he really started, I think kind of came to peace with himself that, that sort of, he found what he was looking for uh, since he was a kid. And a big part of that is something a lot of people don't know about Steve McQueen is he uh, became a born again Christian during this part of his life. Can you tell us about this part of Steve McQueen's life? Sure. 
Yeah, that, that happened with the move to uh, Santa Paula, which is about an hour outside of LA. And that's the antique playing capital of the world. And so McQueen was a kind of an impulsive guy. And, and um, <laughs> Bar- Barbara Minty, his, his widow, told me, uh, she said he was, he was on the bathroom shitter when he was f- flipping through a, a airplane magazine and, and spotted this antique airplane that he wanted and then like called, bought it. All of a sudden he's flying airplanes and then all of a sudden he's, uh, going to, uh, Santa Paula, like driving there almost every day to fly his plane because he wants to, uh, you know, solo. So when he's up there in Santa Paula, he's, he's being taught by a guy named Sammy Mason and Sammy was a uh, test pilot. He was a World War II guy, about 10 years older than Steve. And Steve was looking for a father figure all of his life because his father, obviously he never knew his dad and his father walked when he was six months old. And so Sammy was had this thing about him that this presence about him that Steve couldn't quite put his finger on. So one day Steve said, well, what's different about you? I can't quite put my finger on you. And, and that's when Sammy said, well, Steve, I'm a born again Christian. And so from that point on, Steve tried to emulate Sammy and he um, started asking him, hey, can I go to church with you? Can I sit with you? So something had obviously taken hold. And then I, I spoke to the pastor of that church who said one day after three, you know, he, he had heard about Steve McQueen attending, but, you know, he made it a point and he made it a point of telling his congregation, do not bug this man. He said one day, three months after he started attending, I get this tap on my shoulder and it's Steve. And he asked me to go to lunch. And so Steve, they went to lunch and he said that Steve grilled him for about two hours on the, the Christian faith and the Christian walk. And uh, he answered all his questions. And when he was, fin- and when so when Steve was finished, and he smiled and said, "Okay, well, that that answers about all all I have." And so, the the pastor, his name's Leonard Dewitt. He said, "Well, Steve, I only have one question for you." And Steve smiled and said, "You want to know if I'm a born again Christian, don't you?" And he said, "Yes, that's that's all that really matters to me." And Steve said, "Well, do you remember, you know, a couple weeks ago when you had that invitation to accept Christ?" into our hearts and say a prayer. And he goes, yes. He goes, well, I did that. And so people noticed that there was a change in him. His, his widow, you know, said one day, Steve just said, we're going to church. <laughs> Let's go get you some dresses. Cause he didn't want her. He, he was kind of old fashioned a lot of ways. He wanted her to wear like a dowdy dress that went below her knees. And then they, they had uh, Bible study lessons because they were going to get married and they were going to learn how to be, become a Christian couple. So these were things that, that Steve was doing at the end of his life. And this was before he had the cancer. A lot of people like to peg it to, oh, you know, he had cancer, so he knew he was dying. He's preparing himself. This, that, that wasn't the case. He was, he, was, he was going to church in the spring of 79, and he was diagnosed with cancer in December of 79. So that, that disproves that. And then people also said that, you know, the people you interviewed that his, I don't know, his demeanor changed. Like he became less volatile and just, I don't know, less mean. Like he just kind of mellowed out after this, this happened. That's, that's true. And, and, and again, he, he continued on with doing nice things like um, on the set of The Hunter, his, his stuntman, Lauren Jane said that he saw these kids uh, tossing a football around and it was a, like this football laced with wire stuffed with rags. And that he looked at Lauren and Lauren knew that as a cue to, uh, he gave Lauren like 300 bucks. And so Lauren went out and bought all these footballs, baseballs, baseball bats, lined them up in the field one day. And then the kids just kind of went at it. And then there was also another case where he learned of this young lady by the name of Karen Wilson, who came to the movie, who came, who came to the Saturday day 
And he said, why aren't you in school? And, and she was telling about telling him about, well, her life, you know, that her mother was an addict and that she was dying and that she needed the money. And Steve, Steve and Barbara pretty much adopted this young lady. And I'm in touch with her to this day. And uh, Karen um, is in the banking industry and she, she often credits Steve with saving her life. So these are the kind of the, the unknown stories, the, ni- the nice stories of Steve McQueen. So those were the things that he did as he got older and mellowed out. And, and you know, and, and Bud Eakins, his best friend, just said, you know, he was just became a nicer human being. So you mentioned, you know, he got methylcinioma because of that stint he did in the brig. It finally manifested itself in the late 70s. And this is when he, he starts dying. This is like the final act of Steve McQueen. It is like, really, it was so sad. Like, I was like, man, I was... I was rooting for, I, I was hoping that he'd make it through, uh, even though I know the end, end of the story. And what, what made this, his death even sadder was like how public it was. Like the first time a celebrity's death was incredibly public, which made it even more uh, unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about the end of Steve McQueen's life? Well, yes. And, and, and specifically in, re- in regard to the, the, the gossip rags, I think at that time, and I write this in, in that book, that the National Enquirer was was taken over by a new editor who had new ethics. And, you know, he felt that Steve McQueen was a public figure. People would want to know about him. And I think they, a nurse who had his medical records, Steve's medical records, tipped off the National Enquirer and they wrote a story about it. And so from that point on, there was kind of a death watch on Steve McQueen. And uh, I can't think of another celebrity where that happened where they would just you know watch this person and, and then put out bounties. There was a bounty on Steve for $50,000 to get a picture of him in his cancer-riddled state. And you know when he passed away there was a really ugly incident where the media came in and took pictures of his body in the morgue. And that was the Mexican media and there was a one member of um, of of a uh, and I and I actually talked to him and I asked him why he did that because this guy told me that McQueen was his hero. And he said, I was a young reporter and was told to, you know, to do my job. And if I didn't come back with that role of film, I'd be fired. So that's how things got. Now, uh, you know, today, I think that still exists to, to some certain extent. But but at that point, that's that was kind of the start of that. And, and you know, that's where um, it, it perhaps was its ugliest. And you know what was also sad about his death was like McQueen was both at times the way the the, the vibe that I got was that vibe he liked to use that word vibe McQueen did was that he like was kind of he was at peace both at peace with his with his you know that he was dying but also really desperate to like keep living and he, he in fact he did these like really controversial cancer treatments down in Mexico because uh, he really thought it would work and he could you know get out of this. Yeah, and, and he flip flopped between if he was going to live or die, and the, you know, the main reason why he kept going was for his kids. You know, he wanted to live for his kids, so you, you certainly can't blame a guy for for wanting to do that. So, you know, it just it, it it was just very sad. But you know, he was he was such a strong guy that it was hard for everybody to comprehend that you know he had cancer. So that's what made the story even more compelling was this this uh, macho action star has cancer and uh, he's ailing and uh, we should probably document it. You know, that's, that was, again, that was the uh, attitude at that time. So you, you spent better part of, you know, almost 40 years writing about Steve McQueen and talking to people that knew him. Like, what's your, like, what are some like the big takeaways from Steve McQueen? Like, how is he 
influenced? I mean, has he like changed your life or like you've done things, you've emulated, emulated things about Stephen Queen or I mean, what, what, what's your takeaway as a biographer? Well, I can say that he's influenced my life in terms of my career. I wouldn't have a literary career without Stephen Queen. In terms of emulating him, I'd have to say no. What I would try to do or, or learn the lessons of his life. But he was a guy that pulled himself up by the bootstraps. You know, back, back then, America's uh, economy wasn't such that you had many choices, especially for somebody who had a ninth grade education. So, I mean, he was a guy that had a terrible background, didn't have many uh, choices economically, but worked hard. And once he got into acting, he worked incredibly hard and then became uh, this mega star. So, I mean, it, it, it's proof that the, the American dream still exists. And um, so that that's kind of the, the takeaways that I have for him is that he, he in a way, he's in the embodiment of an American dream, but per, in his personal life certainly was not. But, you know, he showed that you could come from any circumstance and, and become, become very successful. In terms of will there other be another actor like Steve McQueen, you know, that's like saying, will there be another John Wayne? Will there be another Beatles? Will there be another Bruce Lee? Um, the, and the answer is no. Uh, will there be another Elvis Presley? No, because, you know, they, they broke the mold. They're, they're, I, I call them their icons who are iconoclasts. You know, they, they broke the mold and there will, you know, nobody should even try to emulate them or try to be like them. They, they need to be their own person and have their own identity. Well, Marshall, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about your work and your latest book too about Steve McQueen? Well, the, the latest book is called Steve McQueen in His Own Words, and you can get that at www.daltonwatson.com. As far as my work, the best place to go is to go, go on amazon.com. You'll see all the variety of books that I've written. Fantastic. Well, Marshall Terrell, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much. I, I enjoyed it. My guest today was Marshall Terrell. He's the author of multiple McQueen biographies. His latest is Steve McQueen in his own words. They're all available on amazon.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash McQueen. We find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast, and it wraps up another year of podcasts. Putting out two podcasts week after week for 52 weeks out of the year isn't just me. It's a team effort. So I want to take this time to thank those involved in making the Art of Manliness podcast happen. First off, we have Kate McKay, our podcast editor. She listens to each episode over and over again, makes cuts, makes sure things flow right. It's snappy. So thank you, Kate, for all the work you do. We also have Jeremy Annenberg, our podcast producer. He just oversees the whole podcast process. He lines up our guests. He makes sure guests has mics. He does sound checks with guests, you know, uploads the podcast, makes sure everything goes out on time. It just oversees the process. So thank you, Jeremy, for doing that. And we also have Creative Audio Lab. There are sound engineers based out of Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. We give them the podcast. They clean it up, make sure it sounds as the best that we can. So thank you to them. And finally, thank you to all who listen to the AOM podcast. Your support is what makes this happen. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. We're looking forward to another year, 2021 of Art of Manliness podcast. So until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you, not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action.